So you can turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. We're in a series in Romans, and so this is the third uh, of the messages from Romans that we're in. So Romans 1, 16 and 17, I'm going to read from the English Standard Version. You can follow along with me, and then we will uh, jump in and, and, and try and understand what God has said to us. Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. May God bless the reading of his word. And so this morning, like I mentioned, we continue our series in Romans. We took a break last Sunday um, and it was great to have Nigel uh, come and minister the word and it worked out well because I was down with COVID and Michelle also was down with COVID and many of you prayed for us and we're absolutely fine now, no problems. That's what COVID is now. It's just one of those things that scares you for a little while and then it's like, you know what, don't bother. That sort of a thing. But I know there's a few other people that have uh, been down with COVID the last two, three weeks or so. And so there's, uh, you know, they're, they're all recovering at home. But thank you for praying for us. It's good to be back to continue on in uh, these, this letter. Now, these two verses is what we're going to look at this morning. Not more in that sense. We're going to take out of these verses and try and understand what Paul is saying to us. And they form really, in many ways, the key to understanding Romans. They are, in that sense, the heart of Romans, uh, so to speak. And so it's really important for us to try and grasp some of the things that Paul is saying over here. Now, in the sermon from two weeks ago, I hope you had a chance to listen to that. It's on the website. Uh, Romans 1, uh, 8 to 15, we saw, if you remember that, a lot of discussion uh, that Paul had about his relationship with the Roman church. He'd never visited them. He knew a few people there, but he had heard of their reputation. And so he was really excited about them. And if you read that, that, that section 8 to 15 of chapter 1, there's a lot of I and you, right? And so he's constantly talking about how he feels toward them and how they're doing and all of those things. And so we spent some time talking about what it means to be in community and what relationships ought to look like. But this morning, he moves from his personal comments uh, to them to a discussion on the gospel and why he is not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Now this comes out of his statement in verse 15. Just jump back and look at verse 15. And here's what he says. He says, So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Why was Paul eager to preach the gospel? Well, because there's something about the gospel of Christ that Paul is totally taken up by. He is captivated by its power and what it accomplishes, by its beauty, by his majesty. He's, he's captivated by the gospel of Christ and so he's eager to proclaim the gospel. Remember, this was the same Paul, Saul previously, who a few years earlier was persecuting the followers of Christ. He was even putting some of them to death. This was the same person. But his life was turned around when he met Jesus, or rather Jesus met him on that road to Damascus. 
and then he, he, he saved him and he commissioned him to take the gospel to the nations and Paul's life was completely turned around when he came face to face with the resurrected Christ and the mercy and the grace of God. Something transforming happened. You know, many years ago, uh, I was driving my, my dad's car. This is a long time ago. And I was pulled over for having crossed a red light. Now, of course, I didn't think I did it. But we're all innocent, aren't we? We never do it, right? We argue with the cops. No, 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 it's not my fault. It's your fault. You weren't looking properly. Unko kyune pakara and all that stuff, right? And so, anyway, the cop, you know, he, like the Delhi cops, they never have it, right? They're just going to be stern. And so he took my license and he gave me a parchi. And he said, you're going to have to go to the court and you will get your license back after a month. And so he took it away. And so a month later, I went to the court and I had quite a bit of money in my pockets because those days they didn't have Paytm. This was 1998 or 9 or something like that. And so I had cash. I had no idea what the fine was going to be. And so I went ready just in case it was a few thousands, you know. And so I went to the court. And after a couple of hours of standing in a very crowded place, I was finally called in and I stood in a crowded courtroom before the judge. I can't remember all that she said to me. It was a, a, a woman who was there. But one thing she did say is, be careful next time. You're free to go. Man. And so I walked out and I didn't have to pay the fine. And I got my license back. And if you think about moments like that, they're the sweetest moments, aren't they? You walk out of there and you're like, wow, this is amazing. You're so happy. You wait to tell everybody what had just happened. They're sweet. They're moments of gratitude. In truth, the gospel of Christ ought to give us a lasting sense of gratitude and happiness even when we understand how much we have been forgiven how much Christ has done to save us and to reconcile us to God. It ought to be the thing that we celebrate the most, the thing that we proclaim the most even. And so maybe the text, and hopefully the text this morning and the message this morning will help you grasp in a deeper way what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. So here are two reasons from the Bible, from the text, why we ought to celebrate and proclaim the gospel. Two reasons why we ought not to be ashamed of the gospel. That's what Paul says, right? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He puts it negatively, but he's making a positive point. He says, I'm, I'm excited about the gospel. I want to proclaim the gospel. That's what he's saying. And here's two reasons. Well, here's the first one. The gospel is the power of God that saved us by faith. And number two, in the gospel... God declared us righteous by faith, right? We're going to dig into these so you can make a note of them. The gospel is the power of God that saved us by faith. And number two, in the gospel, God declared us righteous by faith. Let's take these one at a time. The first one, in the gospel, or, or let me say it this way, the gospel is the power of God that saved us through faith. Look at verse 16 in your Bibles. This is what it says. I think the, yeah, you can keep going, yeah. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Now that's interesting, right? And I was, I was looking through it and I, and I noticed that phrase over here, 
that the gospel is what the power of God for salvation it is the power of God for salvation and so I I said let me just look it up and so I typed in the power of God and I searched in Paul's letters and he uses it in at least three of his letters where he talks about the gospel being the power of God and I, I found that for instance in 1 Corinthians 1 18 and 1 24 he describes the word of the cross or the message of the cross as being the power of God Keep that in mind. The word of the cross or the message of the cross as being the power of God that should be in the text up there. So you can just see it, right? And then the other one is in verse 24 where he says, Christ crucified is the power of God. It's the power of God. And that's interesting to me because both of these are talking about the message of the cross. Christ crucified as being what? the power of God now that's counterintuitive if you think about it because how can a story of crucifixion and death be a story of power how can a story of crucifixion and death be a story of power and I know we're very familiar with it and so we kind of jump ahead to you know this is what the cross of Christ accomplished but think for a moment what people were looking at when they saw this suffering servant on the cross think for a moment when they were whipping and, and scourging the Lord Jesus Christ and they put that scarlet robe on him and they mocked him and they said you king of the Jews you think you are imagine that or when they crucified him, it tells us in the text that the, some of the people passing by, they derided him. They mocked him. And they said, if you're the son of God, come down. Show us that you're the son of God. And Jesus could have done it. In fact, when they came to arrest him, he said, I can easily call down 12 legions of angels. He had the power at his disposal to completely destroy and vanquish his enemies in that moment and even come down from that cross. But he doesn't. He stays there on the cross. And so it's interesting to me that Paul picks up that cross and he says the message of the cross, Christ crucified, is a message of power. It's a message of power. So why does Paul describe the cross as the power of God? Well, because through the cross of Christ, God saves people. Through the cross of Christ, God saves people. The word gospel is a word that encapsulates what Jesus accomplished through his earthly life, his death and his resurrection. And so Paul says that he is not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation, of, for the salvation of everyone who believes. It's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. So there's something powerful that's happening when Christ is crucified. And then you've got to ask another question and say, okay, why so much power? Why, why the need for that kind of power that Paul is talking about over here? To save us. You know, I think we need to understand over here how desperate the human condition is. 
I remember in 2018, and you probably remember this as well, how 12 uh, boys, along with their coach in Thailand, you remember that story? Uh, went into, they went on a trekking expedition into some of the caves in the northern part of Thailand. And so they went into one of the caves and uh, they went quite deep and before they could turn back, they realized that they were trapped because it had started raining and the levels of the water had risen up. And so there was no way they could go back to the mouth of the cave. And so they started going in deeper to try and find another way out. They ended up going in about four kilometers into that cave trying to find a way out. It was two weeks before anybody found them. They thought they were dead, you know, and so it took them two weeks with these divers who went into the mouth of that cave, expert divers, had to go into those tunnels deep in absolute darkness. And they went through several caves when finally they found these boys, 12 of them with their coach, in one little hole tucked away, cold, starving, dehydrated, but alive. And so there's actually a, a, a document, I don't know, it's in one of these, these uh, prime videos or something, I'd watch it, it's really interesting, the story of how it actually happens. And there was no way they could have escaped. It was a desperate situation. And so these divers got in and then, you know, and the army was there and several options were considered. They thought they'll tunnel in from the top of the mountain. They thought they'll come in from some other entrance to try and find, but nothing really worked. Finally, the rescuers settled on the option, listen to this, of sedating each of the boys. And then two divers would hold that boy dive under the water and for about four kilometers under the water they would go down and then come up go down and come up and they would find their way out of the cave amazing isn't it and over the next from from i think july 8th to 10th over three days they managed to rescue all the 12 boys their coach get them out of the cave sadly one of the rescuers lost his life now i i watched that story and I, it's just amazing how desperate and hopeless their situation was and how they were rescued and I like that story because it I think it illustrates well for us how desperate and hopeless the human condition is take some of those those aspects from that cave there's darkness there's loneliness there's hopelessness there's despair and that's the human condition that people live in we're in a situation where we cannot save ourselves. And I want to show you a, a verse, couple of verses from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 3, where Paul is talking about our life apart from Christ. And this is what he says. He says, uh, Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Notice that, that you were dead. And then he says, Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's the devil, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Now that's not a pretty picture of a life apart from God. 
And I wonder if you, you know, many of us have grown up in Christian homes and we've been Christians all our life. And sometimes, if you're like me, it may be hard to imagine a life apart from Christ. But I've tried to do it. And I think it's good to do it. I think it's good to try and imagine and picture what it would be like to not have God in your life. To not have an understanding of how much God loves you and, and the plans and the purposes that God has for all things and how you fit into it. You see, the reality is there is tremendous lostness, confusion and deep despair in the world. And people might look put together on the outside. They look put together on the outside. But the rot runs deep. Added to that is an ongoing rejection of God. And we're going to actually see that in the next section from verse 18 onwards. This ongoing rejection and rebellion against God because people don't want God in their lives. They're at enmity with God, unwilling to acknowledge Him. And so the human heart is hardened toward God. And it takes nothing less then the powerful working of the gospel of Christ to penetrate hard human hearts. Think about this for your own life. If you're a Christian for a long time, how hard your heart can also be toward God, isn't it? It's, it's true. Your heart is not always soft and excited about God. Your heart is not always, you know, enthusiastic about the word of God and the things of God. You're easily distracted. You're easily carried away by the things and the concerns of this world. And your heart can grow cold and hard to the things of God. It's possible for that to happen. And it takes the gospel of Christ, the power of the gospel of Christ, to break through that hardness, to open us up to who God is who God is in Colossians 2 14 we get an idea of this power he says by cancelling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands this he set aside nailing it to the cross he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him you see the cross of Christ was not a spectacle of defeat, but of triumphant victory over the enemies of God, Satan, sin, and death itself. And so when we believe in Christ, we're saved from our sin, we're saved from the power and the dominion of Satan following the prince of the power of the air that he talks about, and we're saved from eternal death and separation from God. And I want you to notice what he says in verse um, in verse 16 he says uh, for, for the salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek that's his way of talking about every single person every single person who believes no other qualification for a person is required other than that they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that's what qualifies you for salvation that you believe in Jesus and it doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter whether you're North Indian or South Indian or East Indian or West Indian. It doesn't matter. And I'm not saying West Indian as in West Indies. I'm talking about Rajasthan. 
you know, that West Indian. Doesn't matter. Everyone who believes is saved. And so the first reason we ought to celebrate and proclaim the gospel unashamedly is because the gospel is the power of God that saved us through faith from our desperate and hopeless situation. The second reason we ought to celebrate and proclaim the gospel is that in the gospel, God declared us righteous by faith. God declared us righteous by faith. Now, this is a further explanation of how God saves us in the gospel of Christ. And so look at verse 17 of Romans chapter 1. Here's what he says. He says, for in it, which is what? The gospel. In it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. What is the righteousness of God that Paul is talking about here? And so what I did is, you know, I, I, did, I did a study of the word righteousness uh, in Romans. And it shows up, I think, about 29 times in, just in Romans that Paul uses the word righteousness. And there's three ways in which he uses them, the word righteousness. And I want to just quickly tell you what they are and I will focus on the last one. But the first way he uses the word righteousness is to speak of the character of God as being someone who is righteous and just. God is righteous and just. That's his character. That's who he is. Alright? So Romans 3.25, Romans 3.26, those verses are up there. You can even just make a note of them. Speak about the character of God as being someone who is righteous. Now the second way in which it is used is to speak of God's works of righteousness and also our works of righteousness. So in Romans 5.18, we read of Jesus' one act of righteousness that justifies many people. Right? That's what he says over there. Jesus' one act of righteousness that justifies many people. In Romans 6.13, Paul talks about how we use our bodies as instruments of righteousness, to do righteous acts. So that's another way in which the word righteousness is used. But the overwhelming way in which Paul uses the word righteousness, this is the third one, listen to this carefully, is to refer to the righteousness of God that is bestowed on us through faith. The righteousness of God that is bestowed on us through faith. It is the righteousness that God gives us freely and graciously let me put it another way maybe an easier way to understand he declares us righteous or in right standing with himself god declares you in to be in right standing with him he is the righteous one right he's just and perfect in all his ways and god picks you and me up out of all of our filth and our muck and our dirt cleans us off and he puts us in a right standing with himself that's what it is it's one of the most stunning things about the gospel of christ that a sinner like me is covered and clothed with the righteousness of god in theological terms we say that god has imputed righteousness to us that means he's credited righteousness to our account 
Let me show you a couple of verses uh, from Romans itself where Paul talks about this. Romans 3, 22 to 24. Here's what he says. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, right? It's for all who believe. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's us. And are justified, meaning declared righteous by His grace as a gift through, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Amazing. We're declared righteous. Romans 4, 5. Here's what he says. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. His faith is counted as righteousness. One more, Romans 5.17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. You see what he says? That we receive the free gift of righteousness, reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And there are at least 18 references, including these three, in Romans to the righteousness of God as a gift that is imputed to us, that is given to us when we put our faith in Christ. It's in our account. God looks at you looks at you now as righteous you may not feel that way you may not think of yourself that way you might be thinking about all the the filth and the gunk in your life and all the stuff that you are and do but god looks at you different through jesus christ in fact satan's business is to come alongside you and to constantly accuse you and to say you know what you're never going to change no one knows that deep dark secret in your life but i know it and i'm going to keep reminding you of it and i'm going to keep provoking you and i'm going to keep telling you of how useless you are how much of a failure you are and that's why the scriptures tell us that jesus is our advocate before the father who constantly intercedes for us and he does that with the father but he constantly reminds us through the gospel that we aren't what the devil is telling us we are. We are in Christ Jesus, a new creation. We are new people, covered and clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That's why I like what Paul says, you know, as he's reflecting on his own life and his own sin. And he says, I count all my accomplishments as absolute rubbish because I want to know Christ. And then in, in Philippians 3, 9, he says this, I want to know him and I want to be found in him. Listen to this carefully. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Because it's an imperfect righteousness at best. But I want a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's what I want. I want to be covered and clothed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to be seen in right standing with God because God has declared me to be in right standing with himself. Now I want you to notice also over here in verse 17, Paul says, In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. That's an interesting phrase. From faith for faith. That doesn't even make sense in English almost. We never talk like this. Right? 
but in the Greek it sort of translates this way. And I think what he's doing over here is to tell us, or another way of saying it is that righteousness is all about faith from beginning to end. In other words, there's no place for human works and effort to be justified before God. No place for our good works to be justified before God. Righteousness is what God gives us as a gift when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. We're in a right standing with God, not because of how good you are or the good things you've done. You are right before God because of the good things that Jesus has done. The perfect things that he has done. His life was a perfect life. And you now are covered and clothed in Jesus Christ. That's amazing. Because that totally removes any grounds for boasting and pride. In fact, it's a humbling thing. Because God is showing us, like those boys in the cave, that you cannot save yourselves. You need help from outside. You need rescue and deliverance from outside. You know, this is contrary to what we religious types want or like. We want to justify ourselves before God. We would like God to be indebted to us in some way. The idea that we have done zero, listen to that carefully, the idea that we have done zero to earn God's favor stings our pride a little bit. Because we think we're, we're not so bad. We're pretty good actually. Because we have a high opinion of ourselves and our works. And therein lies the problem. Therein lies the problem. You see, the reason why we are so lukewarm and unenthusiastic about the things of God and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is because somewhere deep down inside, we think that we have earned God's favor by how good we are. Somewhere deep down inside. And so we think that God should be thankful to us because we came to church today. We think God should be thankful to us because we served somebody. We think we should be thank God should be thankful to us because we sang on the worship team. That God should be thankful to us because we gave an offering. And so somewhere deep down inside, God is in our favor. He is in our debt, so to speak. So why should I be overly grateful? God should be overly grateful in some way or the other. And I know it sounds really twisted, but just look at your life and look at your actions and look at the way you live and see what place and position God has in your life. And if he is somewhere, anywhere other than the highest place in your life, then you've reversed your relationship with God and you're on top and God owes you. But that's us, that's the religious types. But Paul says from the beginning to the end, it's about our faith 
not our works our works qualify as zero before God in fact all the works that we do coming to church giving an offering singing on the team all the things that I mentioned and much more are the things we do out of a heart of deep gratitude to God of thankfulness to God for all that he's done for us not to just tick off our Christian religious boxes and practices Paul quotes uh, Habakkuk he says that uh, 2-4 and I, maybe I won't get into this too much today but he says the righteous shall live by faith again just to emphasize the point that we are saved by faith we're in a right standing with God by faith by faith And so Paul will look at these things and he says, you know what? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm more excited about anything. I'm not more excited about anything in the world as much as I am about the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm willing to endure any kind of hardship, even to the point of death if I have to. Because I can't contain this joy of the gospel of Christ. Let me finish this morning with a story that Jesus tells us in the Gospels in, and in Luke chapter 7 and you can probably look it up if you want to from verse, 30, uh, verse 35 or so onwards. It's a story of, of Jesus having a meal at the home of Simon the Pharisee. And so as they're reclining around the meal and they're having that, that time together, a woman walks into that gathering. And Simon is a Pharisee, the religious types, right? Oh, very proper. And this woman walks in and she's in that narrative. She's, a, she's got a reputation of being a sinner. We don't know what it is, but that's the reputation she had in that city. Just imagine that. That sinner. And this woman found her way to Jesus because there's something different about Jesus. She found her way to Jesus and she took out this expensive ointment she opened it and she poured it over the feet of the Lord Jesus and she began to wipe his feet with, her, with that ointment, with her tears as she wept through that with her hair she anointed the Lord Jesus Christ now the people sitting around there including Simon the Pharisee began to think and to wonder it says and they said, if only G if Jesus was truly a prophet, he would know what kind of woman she is. In other words, if he knew what kind of woman she is, he would have never allowed her to do what she's doing. He would have said to stay out because she's a sinful woman. Jesus knows what's going on in their minds and hearts. And he turns to them and he says, Simon, let me talk to you. And he says there was a, a, a moneylender who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other owed 50 denarii. When they could not repay their debts, the moneylender cancelled both debts. The 500 denarii and the 50 denarii. And then Jesus says to ask Simon, he says, which one of them would be more grateful to the money lender and Simon obviously says the one who has a greater debt isn't it the one who has a greater debt and then Jesus draws a parallel between how Simon the Pharisee 
the religious types, the one who thought they were in a right standing with God because of how good they were, he draws a parallel between him and between this sinful woman. And he says, when I came into your house, you didn't give me water to wash my feet and you didn't do this and this and this. But this woman has not stopped washing my feet and, in, in, and being before me in the way that she is because she's filled with gratitude. And so she was a true worshiper and lover of Jesus because she understood how much she had been forgiven. I said this earlier, you know, the reason why we are so lukewarm and uninterested in the things of God is because we don't understand how much we've been forgiven. Our debt is like the 500 denarii, not the 50. It's been a great forgiveness that we have received. And so which one are you this morning? The Pharisee or the sinful woman? Which one are you? And depending on who you identify with, you will either celebrate and proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and make much of God, or you will expect God to make much of you. Which one do you identify with? Let me give you a moment to just bow your heads and quietly reflect on what we've heard this morning.